This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. Well, you have uh, walked into an intro to New Testament. We're going to start uh, tonight, and we're going to be studying the New Testament for a few months here. Um, so some of you were here uh, 18 months ago, and we did a Old Testament survey, right? We're not going to do a review quiz to make sure you understand, remember everything that I taught, right? Uh, because I just know, I trust you, you remember it all, right? Um, but what we did in the Old Testament survey was once we started the Gospel Project 18 months ago, uh, I just went through what was called a narrative theology approach, okay? So when I, when I first went to school, the first uh, Old Testament survey or Old Testament class that I got in college, it was great. I understood the Bible better than I ever had, but I'll tell you that part of the way that we did it was, okay, um, here's who wrote Genesis, and here's about the time when he wrote it, and here's the chapter breakdown, and here's the major themes. Now let's move to Exodus. Here's who we think wrote Exodus, and here's the time that it did, and here's the major themes. Let's now go to Leviticus. That can be a little overwhelming, and in fact, I was memorizing stuff that I would be able to do on the test, and then I'd forget it, right? And so what I tried to do in the Old Testament survey is what we're going to try to do here. I want to help you get a kind of bird's eye view of the New Testament because a lot of you know a lot of the stories and a lot of the content and even some of the direction of some of the book. What I want is for us in these next few months to really unpack to where you could say, I know the, the major narrative section of the entire New Testament. So if someone were to say, what's the New Testament about? You wouldn't say, oh, it's like 27 books about a bunch of random stuff. You could say, no, no, no. Here is the big picture of what it's doing. So tonight we're going to do a little bit of an intro to help us understand some things, um, but then uh, we'll be unpacking it in the weeks to come. I do want to make sure I go ahead and say this announcement before I forget. Next week we will be meeting, but we will be in the storehouse. Okay, That's in the back uh, behind the sanctuary. We have our upward basketball banquet that's going to be all over this place next Sunday. So we've had a lot of different families that have been uh, helping out with upward basketball, and so we have a banquet it's going to be taking up the sanctuary, fellowship hall, you name it. It's going to be all over the place. So next Sunday night, we will have a quip. Where will we be? Good. You're, you're doing good. If you need to take a note, that's okay. Okay. But if you come in here, you're going to see a lot of kids rolling around and you might get stepped on. So just it, fair warning. Okay. So next week we will have it, but we'll unpack this a little bit. Here's, here's the thing. Uh, why would we go through the uh, New Testament survey like this? From this verse of Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. <clears throat> where it says, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? The reason why we want to study the New Testament as a church in your gospel groups, we're going to spend 18 months going from Matthew to Revelation. We're going to spend for a few uh, months here of unpacking what's the major uh, picture of the New Testament. Here's the reason why. Our culture is a little confused on the identity of Jesus, right? We're a little unsure of who Jesus is, what his message is. And at this point in Matthew chapter 16, the buzz around Jesus was growing. People were talking about him all the place, right? There were all this time, people were talking about Jesus. Oh, he comes to town. I heard he did such and such over there. Maybe he can help my family out. The, the buzz around Jesus was growing. So one day Jesus looked at them and said, hey, boys, so who do all the people say that I am? Well, they said, well, some people think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or a prophet like that. Some people think you're like John the Baptist raised back from the dead. I mean, so obviously you're a prophet, Jesus. Everybody knows that. Something's going on here. And then Jesus looks at them and asks one of the most uh, important questions that any of us can answer. He said, but who do you say that I am? So, so now here's the thing that 
I had been taught this passage, and I have taught this passage earlier on in my life that would say something like this. It doesn't matter who Jesus is as a whole. It matters who he is to you, right? We'll say that kind of stuff. Like what Jesus was saying is, I don't care what everybody else is saying. Boys, what do you say? Where do you stand with me? Who do you think that I am? Now, here's the only problem. In the culture that we live in in 2020, do people have opinions about who Jesus the Christ was? Are all of those beliefs correct about him? No. So here's the deal. It does matter what you believe about Jesus, but what you believe about Jesus better be correct. Right? You better be accurate because you could be completely, completely wrong. Now, um, I, I heard this uh, illustration on a podcast this week, and I thought this was absolutely brilliant. But um, how many of you know my wife, Amanda? Raise your hand. Okay, y'all know Amanda? Okay, good. She is wonderful. And I just want to tell you guys this. this I'm going to set up. I, I stole this illustration from somebody else, but just follow me. I have loved being married to my wife, Amanda. She is the best wife in the world. If you haven't met her, she's, uh, about, she's about 5'10". She's got long blonde hair. She loves to play tennis, and she listens to rap music all the time. I love my wife. She is wonderful. Now, why are some of y'all giggling about this? That's not who she is? Wait, what, what color hair does she have? Oh, she's got brown hair. Who am I talking about here? Okay, now you see, now listen. The illustration is, I'm saying her name. I'm telling you that I love her, but you know by my description, I'm not talking about the same person, am I? Now, there's a lot of people that are in churches today calling on the name of Jesus and saying that they love him, but when they talk about him, they're not talking about the real Jesus. They are, they're expressing love and adoration, and I follow him, and he's great. But the problem is this. He's about this tall, and he does this kind of stuff, and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so, folks, you can even have a legitimate love for Jesus, but it could be misdirected. You're talking about somebody completely different because it's, it's important that you know who it is that you're speaking of. And so we're not just into What do you think about Jesus? And that's okay. Because let me tell you what happens right after Jesus says this. When he said, who do you say that I am? Who spoke up next? Does anybody remember? Peter. All right, folks, if you're a disciple and Peter opens his mouth, you brace for impact, don't you? Like, oh, no. What's he going to say next, right? Y'all have that friend who's like that, right? You just don't know what's going to be said. Peter says, all right, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ, that word means Messiah. He goes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? He goes, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah, what does that mean? He's the son of Jonah. His dad's name was Jonah. He says, blessed are you, son of Jonah, because your father has revealed this to you. Now, don't miss the play on words what Jesus is doing there. Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Your earthly dad didn't reveal this to you. Your heavenly father did. Because truth comes down from above. We don't take it up to him and ask if he can stamp approval on it. It comes down to us. So when Jesus said, you're the Christ, I mean, when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood. Your daddy didn't show this to you. but My father is in heaven show this to you. And I'm telling you that on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, confusion over that statement was is that a lot of people thought, Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute. A lot of people wondered, was Jesus, at that point, was Jesus saying that on that rock he was going to build the church? What does that mean? Churches have been divided over this. Denominations have been divided over this. Because 
Peter's nickname was what? The Rock. Rocky. Okay? It's kind of the play on word. So what's happened is, is that some people took that statement of Jesus to mean that upon this person of Peter, the church would be built. And another group of people say, no, upon that statement of faith that Peter said, that's the, the rock that the church is going to be built on. So that's why that there would be, obviously, there's a lot of people would say, well, Peter has a huge role in our, in our history. That's true. But that's why in, in the, the Catholic or the universal church early on, Peter was seen as the first pope, right? And so they thought on that rock, on Peter, Jesus said he's going to build the church. Other people would say, no, no, it wasn't on a person. It was on what Peter said that day, this. I believe Jesus is the actual Messiah, and we want to follow him. That was the statement that they were building that upon. And right after that happened, right, when, when, when Peter makes a statement, and for one time in Peter's life he got it right, okay, then all of a sudden this is what happens next. Jesus says, all right, now let me tell you what's going to happen to this Christ. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, uh, Mr. Messiah, can you come here for a second? I need to rebuke you. You remember this? Now, isn't that funny? I mean, Peter needs to know how to go out on a high note, right? You did well. Jesus is commending you. Be quiet, boy, right? Don't, don't talk anymore. And he said, no, no, no. He said, um, Jesus, I need, to, I need you to come over here for a second. That's not going to happen to you. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't fitting into Peter's perception of who he thought he should be. So he had a problem with it. Folks, whenever God stops turning out to be who you think you're going to be, we object too, don't we? Oh, that, that's not how I, I, I like it. That's not what I was thinking. Peter objects him. Jesus had just renamed him Peter to mean Rocky. And then all of a sudden, Jesus calls him by another name. Get behind me. Whoa, Satan? You just named me Rocky. Why do I get a new nickname? Because your mind are set on the things of man and not God. You're trying to change the identity of the Messiah. And guess who was the first person to do that? Satan. Satan doesn't like what he sees in God, so what does he do? He tries to change it. And he goes, when you try to do that, Peter, it's exactly a playbook from Satan's playbook, and it's not going to go on. Now, why do I say this? It is important for us to be a people of the book and not just a people of the sincere, sincere devotion. I think Jesus is like that. Because you know what? You could be saying all these wonderful things about him and how much you love him, but it may not be him. You're speaking of him, but you don't know him. And this is why it's so important for us to unpack the truths of what the New Testament is. I want to give you the meaning of the New Testament uh, just to help us kind of understand some things, some, some general concepts for us to look at. But first off, I want you to know this. The Bible is made up of two units, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of you, that is something that you go, well, obviously, we all know that. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, I think it was when we were probably in the Old Testament survey about 18 months ago, where I said something about um, the Old Testament, and somebody put a hand up and says, now you said Old Testament, does that mean there's a new one? And I said, yes, that does. I'm sorry, let me start back here a little bit. So I don't want to take for granted, maybe somebody here that you've never really heard that. You go, I'm finding stuff in the Bible, and you say to go to Philippians, and I'm having to look at the table of contents, and how do you even spell that word, right? It's not a normal word. But I want you to see that the Bible is made up of two units, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you look at my Bible right here, uh, this, is, this section right here is the Old Testament, okay? 
this section. So let me just really get that in your head to think through. In fact, I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew for a second because I want you to see something. <clears throat> turn to Matthew, first page in the New Testament, and I want you to see the different in scope and size that are these two units of the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's somewhat shocking. If I were to poll most of you here tonight and say, which would you prefer to read, Old Testament or New Testament? New? Is that fair? All right. Now, I want you to look at your Bible real quick when you get to Matthew and notice something. How much of this thing is the Old Testament? I mean, at least two-thirds, three-fourths, something like that. This is huge. This is, this is a huge section of it. And so... Um, is the Old Testament something we need to understand? Absolutely it is. Is it the first thing that I teach people if they're starting to walk with Jesus, that's what they need to unpack? Probably not, okay? Because some of y'all have tried that before. You were going to learn the Bible, and you started in Genesis, and oh, you got confused, right? And you got overwhelmed along the way, and you just gave up, and you thought, let me go find Philippians again or something, James, something I can understand. But understand this, that even in the next few weeks, I'm going to catch us up from the Old Testament to get us at the starting block of the New Testament because I think it's so, so important. I'll also say this. Um, when I taught world religions uh, at, and, and taught different Bible courses at Lander University, one of the things is, is that at this secular university, they would call uh, the classes that I taught, the titles were given to me. One was Sacred Texts and Ideas. One was world religions, one was Old Testament, one was New Testament. Let me just ask you a question. How would a Jewish person interpret the term Old Testament? It's offensive to them. If you say the Old Testament to a Jewish person, that's insinuating you believe that there's a what? A New Testament. But the Jewish people would say this. This section right here, this is the Bible. It's not the Old Testament, it's the Bible. This is what we believe. So even when you use the word Old Testament, New Testament, some people are offended by that. You go, well, this is sufficient in itself. The cliffhanger that kind of Malachi leaves us on, that's kind of where the Bible stops because the Jewish people are still waiting on someone. Who is it? The Messiah. They're still waiting for the Christ to come. They believe that he has not come, and they are sitting around the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem praying one day for the Messiah to come because they don't believe that it's come. So when our Bible is composed of these two things, it's important for us to understand we use words like Old Testament, New Testament, but here you need to know, testament means covenant. So the first section of the Bible describes the Old Covenant, while the second section describes the New Covenant ushered in by the coming of Jesus Christ. So when you see Old Testament and New Testament, it is literally synonymous with Old Covenant and New Covenant. What was the Old Covenant that God had with his people Israel in the first section of Scripture and now when Jesus came in, what was ushered in was a, not only a New Testament, it's a new covenant. The new covenant is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is not something separate than, it is the fulfillment of. So Jesus even said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Uh-uh. I haven't come to abolish, but I've come to what? Fulfill them. That's why I'm here. I've come to fulfill everything that the Old Testament is teaching about. And so the Old Testament is about the Old Covenant, about how people were made right with God. The New Testament is the New Covenant of how people were made right with God. Hopefully, as you've studied the last 18 months in your gospel groups, and as we did this, we hear this. The Old Covenant still was pointing to the Messiah, okay? 
I mean, just, just think for example, just to make sure you understand. But when Adam and Eve sinned, and they were so shameful that they got fig leaves to cover up with because they felt dirty and guilty, right? You remember this? And then God gives them punishments and sends them out of the garden, and it says they walk out with something very interesting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It says that God clothed them with garments of what? Skin. Well, they had clothes. They had torn up these bushes and sort of made little clothes of, by themselves. And, and God says, that's not good enough for my people to cover up their shame, they're going to get garments of skin. Follow this. To cover up their shame, someone is going to have to die. It's a fur coat. Someone was sacrificed for that. Now, who is that pointing to all the way back in Genesis chapter 3? To cover up our shame, did someone have to die? You better believe it. Um, Cain and Abel, there's a someone who does right by God and is killed by his brother. Because he's not doing enough, he's jealous, and he kills the brother. So there's an innocent sacrifice. Does that point to anyone? Noah and the ark, that there is somehow a piece of wood that is going to separate the people from God's wrath coming upon them, that they can be secure, and yet the one that is standing outside, the ark is what is taking the wrath of God so that the people on the inside are okay. All this stuff. Sacrificial system. Um, the Passover um, deal, uh, David's situation, all these different things keep pointing to this Messiah. So how were the people in the Old Testament saved? Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Old Covenant, even though they could not name him. What does it say in Genesis uh, chapter 15? Oh, this is such a beautiful uh, section. God takes Abram out one night, takes him on a little walk among the stars. Abram, my son, can you count those stars up there? Uh, God? There's a lot. Just try for me. <laughs> One, two, three. Starts counting. How, how long do I have to do this, God? He said, you're going to have more spiritual descendants than the stars are in the sky. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God, and God credited him righteousness. Now, you followed Abraham's story. Was Abraham a really righteous guy? Not a chance. So how did he get righteousness on his count? God said he believed the promise. What was the promise? Somebody from your family is going to come and bless all the nations of the earth. So who was Abraham believing in? Jesus, even though he couldn't say his name yet. I believe God's promise. Somebody's coming from my family. He's going to set everything right. So his hope, his faith was in the Messiah who's to come, even though he couldn't name it. Even though he didn't know the cross, there were signs all on the way that was pointing him to this. So even the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is pointing to the person of Jesus. Now, read as a complete work, these 66 books are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Deliver one message of God's redemption through the person and work of Jesus. So, how many books in the Old Testament again? There's 39, there's 27 in the New Testament. Altogether, there are 66 books, okay? I will not ask you to repeat them in order right now. Uh, you can start Genesis and in your way to Revelation, because especially some of those spots, you're going, mm, I don't know, right? <laughs> but when you look at it, there are all these wonderful books, but only 27 in the New Testament. And a lot of the books in the New Testament are smaller. Now let's look at Jesus the Christ, because obviously as the person 
It's the focal point of not only the New Testament, but I think the entire Bible. Here's where the credibility of the New Testament enters in. The credibility of the New Testament centers on one question. Is Jesus the Messiah? Really comes down to that. Is Jesus the Messiah? This is what the New Testament is trying to address. <coughs> when we say Messiah, that word can, is also synonymous with a word called Christ or anointed one. So Christos, that word that was originally spoken, Christos is Messiah, Christ, or anointed one. So a lot of people think Christ is Jesus' last name. Not exactly, okay? Back in those days, they wouldn't be Jesus with like, there wouldn't be like Travis and your last name is Agnew. There would be Jesus of Nazareth. This is the city that you're a part of. Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. That's kind of how you knew. You didn't have a last name. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his given last name. Christ means Messiah. So when I'm saying this, I'm saying the person of Jesus, I believe he is the Messiah, which is this, the figure that the entire Old Testament was waiting on to fulfill all this stuff that was going on in the Old Testament. But the credibility, honestly, in the New Testament centers on that question. Now, as a whole, the Jewish community rejected Jesus as a long way to Messiah for different reasons. So once again, to try to tie these things together from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you need to understand there are still people today that will read the Old Testament and read the New Testament and say, I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, gave a great argument about basically where you need to decide where Jesus is. He said either Jesus is liar, he is lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are your options. That's an interesting way to think about it, right? He says, everybody here, he, he said, I want you, I, I think the, the quote, if, if, I, if I can remember, he says, I want you to stop coming with this patronizing nonsense that Jesus was a good teacher and not Lord. The type of man that said the type of things that Jesus said and did and wasn't Lord, he's a fake. So he says, here's your options. Jesus is either a liar, he knew he wasn't the Messiah, and he told everybody that he was, or he's a lunatic, he thought he was, but he was just downright crazy, or either he is who he says he is, he's the Lord. Those are your options. Those are your options. Well, as a whole, those people who start in the Old Testament and then they find the person of Jesus in the time of Christ, but also now, struggle. And here's why. Here's a few different reasons. There's a bunch of them out there. First one is the coincidence argument. The unique manner in which Jesus fulfilled prophecies were due to extreme coincidences. That's what a lot of people will believe. Okay? I am not saying I believe that. I am saying that many people do. That how can you read the New Testament... And then there's all these places where it seems like he fulfills Old Testament prophecies. They will say, it's just a coincidence. Okay? All right? So the Bible talks about where the Messiah was to be born in a small community. Jesus was born there. We won't argue with that. It's just a coincidence. There's a lot of people who were born there. Okay? It just so happened. He was born there. It's a coincidence. It does not mean that he's Messiah. Problem is... When you start looking at all these things that Jesus fulfilled, it's more than a couple things. But some people believe it's a coincidence. Some people think it's the altered gospel argument that followers of Jesus altered with the content of Jesus' biographies to connect him to Old Testament prophecies. When I say um, Jesus' biographies, there are four of them. Does anybody know what they would be? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's what I mean by biographies. Someone is writing about Jesus' life. Uh, are those, are those uh, Gospels, are they entire biographies? Do they cover everything about Jesus' life? No, not a chance. In fact, some of them don't even start until he's age 30. 
Um, so John and, um, and Mark will start basically when he's 30. Matthew and, and Luke will do a little bit of uh, information when he was uh, being born, but not much. But some people will say this. Okay, all right. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it does appear that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. That's easy. These boys wrote it that way. They just wrote it. Okay. Uh, so there's this prophecy about the Messiah doing this. Yep, Jesus did that. And they've altered it. And so you have to wrestle with, I wasn't there when that content was written. Now, how do people respond to it? Um, there are even extra biblical sources. That means it's outside the Bible of people who would speak about Jesus and his followers in those days. Even Jewish men who would write and say stuff like this. Those followers of Jesus, the true ones, they, can't e they will even go to their death proclaiming this gospel message. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, there are some people who would talk about the day that Jesus died and how the sun went dark for hours and how eerie it was. There's different things about how they'll say, and Jesus' body was never found, and some of his followers to this day think he got it from the grave. Outside the Bible, this stuff is recorded in Jewish literature they're writing. But some people say, okay, the, what, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it sure does look like Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. But no, 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 somebody came up afterwards and altered it. Here's what's interesting about that. Um, Mark and Matthew were written in the 50s. Uh, I think Luke was written about the 60s, and John was written around 95 A.D. Um, Jesus died somewhere mid-30s. Uh, of A.D. Uh, some people would say 33, some people would say up to 37, somewhere between 33 and 37 year um, A.D. is when Jesus died. And so the first gospel is written in the 50s. Now some people would say, huh, 15 years off, that seems like a long way. 10, 15 years since Jesus died and the first gospel is written, that seems like a long time. So why is, the, why is there such a gap between when Jesus died and when Matthew and Mark wrote their accounts. Let me ask you, what do you think Matthew and Mark's life looked like as they were traveling evangelists at the time, the 30s, 40s, and 50s? They didn't have a lot of time to sit down by the lake and write their memoirs, okay? They're on the run because people are trying to shut up every follower of Jesus and kill them. So they're on the move a whole lot. And so then over time, they begin to write these accounts and they write these accounts and start delivering them to all these people. And something happens when they said, there was that day one day he was teaching for so long that he, he, taught, he uh, taught and actually fed 5,000 people. Well, if it's happened between 37 A.D. and 50 A.D., if we're talking 13, 15 years or something different, there's still enough of those 5,000 people that are still alive when that book starts circulating. You see what I'm saying? And if they would say, 5,000? Are you kidding me? It was only 20 guys. What are you talking about? They're, they're embellishing this. The books would have been disregarded because there's still enough people alive in that geographical region, and especially in an oral culture that not everybody was always getting the next book on their Kindle. Guess what happened? You told a story, and you remembered it. That's how you communicated. So all these guys had remembered these stories that they've been teaching over and over and over. So if Mark embellished something or Matthew embellished something, everybody would have known and called it as fake. And yet in the early days, everyone around is going, this is accurate of what happened during the life of Jesus. No one is doubting that. So when people say altered, it, it causes a complication for a lot of folks. Here's another reason why some people say the intentional fulfillment argument. Jesus intentionally set out to fulfill prophetic content regarding the Messiah. 
You say, okay, it's obvious Jesus does appear to fulfill certain prophecies in the Old Testament. It's okay. He was intentional about it. He's a young boy, grew up in the Jewish literature, and along the way he would just start making notes. And he would say this, huh, so the Messiah is supposed to ride into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Is that true? That's right. Zechariah talks about how the Messiah will walk into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a, a donkey. Let me just ask you a question. If, if you had the means to go to Jerusalem right now, how many of you think that you could fulfill that prophecy? I could. I could find a donkey. I could ride on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. Is, could you intentionally fulfill that? Yes or no? Yeah, you could. That's obvious. Yeah, okay. He could, could, so did Jesus read that one day and say, I got to get me a donkey and I got to go to Jerusalem? Did, could he even intentionally fulfill that, being deceitful? Sure he could. Can you decide which city you're born in? Can you decide the way you're going to die when you're arrested? You can't do that unless you're God. Unless you're God in the flesh, you can't pull that off. Certain things, sure, no problem, I get it. But you can't decide some of these other things. Some people will go a different way, the context argument, and they'll say the Messianic texts are taken out of context by Christians. They're, okay, yeah, you're seeing that, but they're, they're stretching it. They're, they're taking what was written in the Old Testament, and they're taking it out of context. It's not exactly what Jesus was mentioning. It's not exactly what we thought. They're taken out of context. They're, they're sort of serving their own agenda. So once again, what we have to do is we need to look at the Old Testament, how it was originally written, and understand, does, does Jesus fulfill that in the New Testament? Here's where I think most of the Jewish people around the time of Christ and even today would struggle, is the expectation argument. Jesus was not the type of Messiah these Jewish believers expected. He, he wasn't the one that they dreamed about. They wanted a Messianic leader to come not on the back of a donkey, but to come in on a war horse and kick the Roman government out of their land. They wanted a king like David to rise up and get a bunch of mighty men and overthrow the Romans. They wanted a king like King Solomon who built all this beautiful splendor that all the nations would just be amazed by. Geographically, ethnically, let's bring the power back. And Jesus was a homeless drifter talking about peace. It's not what they expected. Not what they expected at all. So a lot of them would turn their back on Jesus even when so much seemed to point to him. The identity of the Messiah is very interesting because in reading the following passages, do you know of whom they speak? I want you to turn your page just for a moment. These are, yes, ma'am. I did. Uh, it's just the word is context there. The Messianic texts are taken out of context by Christians. I went back quick, though. I apologize. I looked at the time, and I started speeding up. So I want you to turn over on the back side here. There are eight Bible verses that are present here. I want you to read them really quick, and I want you to figure out if you know who they're talking about. Okay? I'm not telling you where they're at, but I want you to just read these verses. If you know who they're talking about, write the name beside it really quick. I'm going to give you just a couple minutes to do that. On your mark, set, go.
give you a little more time. Tip me over and pour me out. Okay, there you go. Um, all right, now that you've got a chance for those, uh, let's read number one together, and let's decide how much money you put down for this uh, final Jeopardy answer. But Noah, number one, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Who do you think that speaks of? Anybody? Jesus. Okay, good. I would agree with that. Okay. Can I tell you where that Bible verse comes from? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Bible scholars, is that Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament. Interesting. Hundreds of years before the time of Christ, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Interesting. Number two, who is this speaking of? They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Who do you think that's speaking of? I'd agree. Just go ahead and warn you, not all of these are supposed to be Jesus. So before you jump at them every time, okay, there's a few of them that aren't. Let me tell you where these Bible verses come from. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16 through 18. Psalm is, are the Psalms in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I thought the same thing, right, okay. Look, look at that verse for a second and how specific it is. And can I tell you something, that when this um, psalm is composed, crucifixion has yet to be invented. It has not been invented. It has not been utilized as execution yet in the world when this psalm is written. And he says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And all the people singing that song in Israel go, that's weird. I can count all my bones. What, what does that even mean? That no bones when Jesus died were broken. You know how you died at crucifixion? You died through asphyxiation. They would, they would, you, you'd suffocate. They, they would nail your, your wrist. They'd nail your, your uh, feet, and your, you'd collapse like this. And the only way, so your diaphragm is expanded. You can even tell my, like, my, my air is sort of shut off. The only way you can get a gasp of air is if you push up on the nail in your ankle and go, <gasps> and then back down. So what happens is, is that when it gets closer to the Sabbath to speed up the death, you remember what they would always do? They'd break the legs of the person on the cross. Therefore, they couldn't do what? They couldn't push up and get that air and just speed up the execution. But they came to Jesus and found out he was already dead because they had beaten him so severely they didn't break a bone on him. So every other guy that was crucified on a Friday night was always, always had their bones broken because they couldn't take care of a dead body on Saturday except for Jesus. And hundreds of years before crucifixion is invented, they're speaking about piercing somebody's hands and feet and his bones are not broken. Can you intentionally fulfill that? Good luck. People stare and gloat over me. Did that happen when, Jesus, when this is happening in Jesus? They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. They're betting on who gets my stuff. Can you determine that's going to happen at your death when you're being executed? I don't think so. Not unless you're God in the flesh. All right? Next one. The virgin will be with child, and we will call him Emmanuel. Who's that speak of? Jesus, right? And his mother's named 
And this verse comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Old Testament, hundreds of years before the time of Mary, a prophecy about someone who's going to claim to be a virgin and have a child, which means God will be with us. Um, <clears throat> next, I think you guys are kind of seeing where all this is heading. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who does this speak of? And it's written about in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 6. Hundreds of years before Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus. In fact, I have a friend, um, uh, one time there was a Jewish person who talked about how the Old Testament did not talk about the Messiah, and I got him to read Isaiah chapter 53, or I actually, I read it to him, but I didn't tell him where it was from. And I said, this is in my Bible. Tell me who you think this is about. And he goes, well, it's obvious it's about Jesus. And I turned the Bible around and said, this is in your section of the Bible. This is in Isaiah chapter 53. And his face just got white, and he goes, well, that's not what that, that, those verses are meaning. And I said, this is in your section that you would claim to be Scripture here. I'm not making this up, right? So we see that even in Isaiah 53, very, very specific. Look at number five. Just warning, this might not be Jesus here. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Who's this about? John the Baptist. So there's going to be some guy in the wilderness saying, watch out, everybody, here comes the Lord. Okay, that verse is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It's also referenced in Malachi, but Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, hundreds of years before the time of John the Baptist and the time of Jesus, they speak of one who's going to be in the desert telling, here comes the Lord, get ready, get ready, get ready. Number six, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Who's that speak about? Judas. So this speaks about the verse of the time when Judas felt guilty about the blood money he got on Jesus, 30 shekels of silver, and he threw it back in there at the potter's house. And guess what? This verse is from Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. Hundreds of years before Judas ever betrayed Jesus. Spoken of a time, the exact price by which he would be betrayed. The exact location. Yes, ma'am. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. Zechariah eleven thirteen. Folks, this is specific stuff. This isn't generic. Eh, someone's going to be really rude to you and probably betray you. This is the money, the blood money. This is where the blood money is going to be thrown hundreds of years before it happens. Do you think Judas is like, oh, let me look at Zechariah verse eleven thirteen. I wonder where I should go throw this money to, right? Did he ask for that 30 shekels of silver? No, it's what the high priest committed they pay him. Um, number seven, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my what? Bread has lifted up his heel against me. It was a term back in those days of saying you betray me. Who does that betray or who's that about? Judas again. Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9. Of a close friend who shares bread. Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9, speaking of a time when there would be someone who would share bread with the Messiah and that man would betray him. Just as we observe the Lord's Supper, this was happening hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And then verse 8. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, although you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, 
whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This one obviously speaks about who was born in the little town of Bethlehem. And this was prophesied in a little Old Testament book called Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Ladies and gentlemen, can you determine which city you will be born in? No, you can't. Can you determine that even though your family lives in Nazareth, somehow the king is going to decide he wants a census right about the time of year about to be born so that your family has to leave Nazareth where they're living and come all the way back to old hometown, sort of just that poor little community that you grew up in, your family's from named Bethlehem. Nothing good going on there. But there's a census that takes place. God is working his sovereign motions to get Joseph and Mary even to that spot at the time of she's when she's about to give birth. Now, folks, those are eight. And I can give you plenty more of showing some of these things. I didn't give you the ones of, did Jesus ride in on the foal of a donkey? Yep. Is that Old Testament prophecy? Absolutely. But I'm giving you these because you can't determine to do that unless you're God. Unless you're God. This is a story that God was working out throughout the history. And so when we look at these New Testament books, they tell this story of originally showing you that the person of Christ fulfills the Old Testament, but also it allows you to understand not only does he fulfill the Old Testament, he's been the point of it all along. and helps even after his biographies, after these Gospels, to help show you what this early church, how they lived in light of this truth. So the New Testament can be broken down into the narratives and the letters. This is a simple way to look at it. We're going to look at it a little bit more complex way. <clears throat> but when you look at the New Testament, these um, 27 books, you notice that the New Testament can be broken down into the narratives. There's really five books that are about a narrative. Narrative means story. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, they're kind of more story in nature. They're going to talk about people doing things. There's teaching in it, but it's a lot of this person moving here and this action taking place. Those four are narratives. And then the letters start, Romans, and even the book of Revelation was a letter that John composed to the churches. So he's basically saying, I need to get this out to these people. So Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians. John would write a certain letter to a certain group of people. James would write a letter to those that were dispersed abroad. John wrote a book, even the letter of Revelation, to get out to people. And that's one way, really, the New Testament is kind of organized that way. First five books are more narrative in nature, and then the next 22 books are more letters in nature. If you want to break it down a little bit more, another way to separate them is by the Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, others' letters, and other letters, and Revelation. If you really want to see how the New Testament is broken down, those five designations will kind of tell you to make sure you know where you are. Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, other letters, and the book of Revelation. That's how all that is organized. So I have this uh, at the end of your page there. Um, just because um, for a table of contents purpose. But as you were to look at that, Matthew through Revelation, I want you to look at those books just for a second. Um, <clears throat> what book are you most familiar with? If you were to look at those, Matthew through Revelation, what's one that you would say, you know what, 
this is one of my favorites, or I've read this a bunch, or I'm most familiar with. What, what's a book somebody would say? What's that, James? James, okay. Romans, okay. Ephesians, good. So some of these letters, they're, they're kind of familiar, and a lot of these are a little bit you know, more prone for us to reading. What are some of the books that maybe you're saying, you know what, uh, not so comfortable with that one, or I even forgot that one was in there. What are some of those that you'd say, I'm not as comfortable with the message of what's in there? Revelation, okay, yeah, good. <coughs> really? Oh, um, it's hard if you're going to have nightmares after reading the Bible. You kind of, you know, you, you kind of process. Any other books? Philemon, okay. Jude is kind of another one that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. But, but here's, here's this looks. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all, if you're looking at the table of contents, they're all a biography of Jesus. They're a gospel. That's what's called the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John. They all tell the story of Jesus, but in a different way. So if you ever read through the New Testament, you go, I just read Matthew. Why am I reading some of the same stuff in Mark? Because they were writing to different audiences and had a different purpose. And what we're going to see in the next few weeks, um, I've done this a few years ago with, well, on Sunday nights, but I'm going to do it as, as a recursor. I'm going to be able to teach you a tip that you're going to be able to read a verse of Scripture and you won't know which book it's from and you'll be able to determine if Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John wrote it. I promise you. You're going to be able to sort of say, oh, okay, so this is said here, that word's used there, and you're going to get some clues because it's kind of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all outside on Wonderf Road, and there's a car crash that happens, and then somebody comes up and says, what did you see? And Matthew goes, well, from my vantage point, this is what I saw. And Mark goes, well, actually, I saw it from this way. And Luke and John, and all the stories work together, but they're different sides of it. Does that make sense? So there are different versions of it. Some of these Gospels will include certain things that other ones don't. Some of them are going to include certain words that others don't. Some of them are going to say, we don't need to worry about birth narrative. Let's just get to the point. And some people are saying, no, no, no. we got to get to the birth narrative. It's important because the audience who they're writing to. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those narrative portions of the Gospels. The next book, the only other really narrative book, is the book of Acts. Uh, does anybody know who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did, right? So honestly, Luke and Acts are really kind of one book, volume one and volume two. So if you read Luke and Acts, it just feels like it continues on. Jesus goes up to heaven, and the disciples continue to do what Jesus has been doing. So Acts is all about the early church, what's happening. So from the time that Jesus ascends into heaven to the time where, where Paul is basically on death row awaiting his trial, it's the story of how the church advanced over many, many years. That's the narrative portion. Then you get to a book called Romans. And when I say it's Paul's letters, I want you to look. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon. That, those letters right there are all from Paul. Romans to Philemon are from Paul. And you say, why are they in that order? I'm so glad you're at, you asked. They are from the longest to the shortest, mostly. The only difference here is Romans through 2 Thessalonians are written to churches. 1, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. Epistle is just another word for letter. These were written to specific pastors. One was, 1 Timothy was written to a pastor named, does anybody want to guess? You guys are so smart. Timothy, right? And 2 Timothy was, guess what? A second letter that he wrote to Timothy. Titus is a letter that he wrote to a pastor. And Philemon 
is a specific letter written to a specific guy about a unique relational situation that Paul felt like he needed to address. But these letters, Romans is first because it's the longest. First and second Corinthians are next because they're next the longest, and then it goes from there. They're not in chronological order. I think the first book that Paul ever wrote was Galatians, okay? That it was Galatians. When you look at what he says there, it was Galatians coming down, but I, and I think 2 Timothy was the last book that he wrote. Then we get to the book after Philemon. What's that book? Hebrews, which is the longest of the books from Hebrews to Jude, which are books that someone else wrote, okay, other than Paul. Um, who wrote Hebrews? We really don't know. No one really ever gives a name, and no one's really sure. Some people think it's so deep that it was Paul. I can tell you this. I can read Paul's writing um, in Romans. I can read it in any of his letters. I can read Paul's uh, letters in Greek. When I get to Hebrews, when you read it, it is obvious somebody other than Paul is writing this. Just the way he writes, it's just different. It's just different. It's like... This guy went to a different grammar class than Paul did. They just write differently. It's just it's, it's obvious, but we don't know who wrote it. It's wonderful. It's deep, but I don't think Paul wrote it. Somebody else did. And, and people who put together our, our, the canon of Scripture here, the Bible, uh, they didn't think so either. James is written. Uh, this is not James the disciple. This is James the brother of Jesus, okay, uh, which is interesting if, if I was the brother of Jesus and I was writing a book, you know how I'd start my book out? I would say it like this. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to you people. You know what it starts off with, James 1.1? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever told your sibling that you were a bondservant to them? Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. Unless that you thought that your older brother was also the son of God. Only way you could do that. Uh, then there's First and Second Peter, written by who? Anybody? Peter. First, Second, Third John, written by John. Jude was guess what? Another brother of Jesus who starts out his letter the same way, not bragging about that he comes from the family of Jesus, proclaiming that he belongs to Jesus as his Messiah. Then the Book of Revelation comes at the very end. It's um, uh, obviously, it's towards the end times, and so they, they kept it there at the end. It is one of the more difficult books to read and understand in the entire Bible. But also, I'll say this. If you read those 22 chapters, and if you don't get bogged down in the beast and the dragons and the fire and the trumpets, if you just read it and you get chapter 1 through chapter 22, it's beautiful of uh, this glorious picture of Times are going to get hard. Jesus is going to win, and we're going to be in heaven with him forever, and it's going to be perfect. Now, that, that I can get excited about, right? Now, the details, I'll lose sleep and get a headache over. But the, the big picture, right? Now, who wrote the book of Revelation? Does anybody know? John did. John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John and also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Not John the Baptist John, okay? John the Baptist didn't have time to write anything. He got arrested and beheaded. He didn't have time to write. John the disciple, Jesus' best friend, wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So, in our final few moments here, we're at Matthew chapter 1, because I want to show you something. <coughs> if you were going to start New Testament to explain that Jesus is Messiah, 
Do you think that the most engaging, exciting thing that you could ever start with would be a genealogy? <laughs> kind of, you know, you, you kind of, I, I kind of tap out sometimes when I get numbers or first and second chronicles, like, oh, it's a lot of names. Such and such beget such and such. Okay, I got it. Like, why is this so important? And yet, they position Matthew as the first gospel in the New Testament. I don't think it was the first gospel written. My personal preference, I think Mark wrote before Matthew. I think Matthew is a few years after Mark. So why isn't Mark first? I think because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, here we go, this is all connected. So he starts with a genealogy. And I want to read this to you uh, because it's, it, I, I want to show you that even this can be exciting. But I want you to listen to, because normally in a genealogy, you have father to son, 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 because nobody else is really important than genealogy back in those days. I want you to listen in. I want you to, if you see a name that seems like it jumps out, that doesn't, mit, uh, doesn't fit that progression, father to son, father to son, I want you to take note of it, and I want you to tell me which names you see. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Let me, let me stop for a second. I know you're just enthralled so much. Do you see anything that broke the, the progression? Miss Emily, which, which name did you see? Yeah? Yeah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, who else? Uriah's wife. That is not even a name, is it? Now, understand this. In a genealogy, <clears throat> you're trying to give credibility to the man of Jesus Christ. And if you didn't realize this, Matthew just aired some dirty laundry. And lots of it from the Old Testament. There's plenty of stuff we can say about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these stories. But when it says in verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Tamar had a child by Judah. Judah had a child by Tamar. Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And he went to a city one day, and he thought that he just was finding a lady of the streets. And come to find out, she got pregnant. And come to find out, that was his daughter-in-law. Now, once again, if you want to paint a rosy picture of this Jesus family, do not include that. Y'all know y'all's family stuff. You try to brush under the rug. Why is Matthew saying, by the way... First page, I want you to know this. The, the next name, what was the next name we said? Rahab. Rahab's job, Old Testament scholars, were what? Prostitute. Going into Jericho, going into the promised land, and these men happen to find this prostitute who says, please don't kill me. I believe your God's bigger than our God. Please don't take me and my family out. And somehow, God used this woman with a sordid past, and now she's in the genealogy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. From a different race, horrible background, and Matthew's going, this is the family of God. Don't miss this. We're not scared of our dirty laundry. 
No, 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 it's out here because God can redeem it all. All of it. Ruth, now listen, she's got a beautiful story. Kinsman Redeemer. I love it. Wonderful. Perfect. But it is not what I tell young ladies of how to get a man. I do not say go watch what Ruth did and go find one. Okay? Boaz is taking a nap, wakes up, and there's this woman at the edge of his bed. He's like, well, nice to see you too, hon. Like, that's, that's not what I tell young ladies. This is how to get a man. I don't go there, right? The story is beautiful, but it's outside even the pure genealogy of all these Jewish people. And God's saying, we're all coming in. All coming in this family. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That just doesn't even sound right, even if you don't know the story. But who was the wife of Uriah? What was her name? Bathsheba. And you know that story, don't you? And Matthew is saying this. This is the story of the family of God. And we're not ashamed to say God can take broken pieces and messed up stories and sinful situations and still Jesus can come up out of this. And if you think your family's got issues, his family has more and he's not hiding it. This is the family where I've come from, and look at the good that came out of it. Even goes down, look all the way, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Even that sounds funny. What are they saying? Joseph's not getting the credit for this birth. God has given this child to Mary. This birth is different. He comes from this family line from Abraham, from the kingship of David, but we want to let you know something. This birth is different. Folks, when he starts out in these opening pages, he is saying, I'm about to tell you a story about a man who changed the entire world. And even in sinful situations and horrible backgrounds and a messed up, dysfunctional genealogy, God's sovereignly working it all together, all together. And I say that to say, be encouraged, because I don't know all the, the things in your history, but I can guarantee this. If God can make good out of this, he can make good out of your stuff too. And so, Father, tonight as we embark upon this journey of studying this New Testament to see if Jesus truly is the Messiah, well, I know that probably for most of us we walk in here and we believe that, God, I want us just to be so confident and so sure. I want our faith to rise up and for us to rejoice that, Jesus, you are the point of the Old Testament. You're the point of the New Testament. You're the point of this church. You're the point of our lives. We want to learn to know you better. So help us as we undergo and continue to study. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See you next week.